Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about strategy. We're talking about abstract strategy games. We have David Abelson for over at Fisher Heat and Games. David, welcome to the show. Hi, how you doing? I'm doing great, sir. It's good to, uh, I guess, hear hear you again. Uh, we, we hung out a good bit at, at Dice Tower Con. You helped me so much, and I'm so thankful for your help with the uh, design challenge that, that was being judged at the time, the BGDL design challenge, and you helped me kind of figure out who won that thing, and I hadn't seen you since, and so it's good to, good to hear from you again. It's good to, to catch up. I, uh, I really enjoyed that. Uh, I hope to do it again. Yeah, definitely. I am excited about you know next year, and, and hopefully you're going to be there as well. And maybe we can sit down and play some more of these prototypes uh, from some of the BGDL community and, and figure out the 2019 uh, winner of the of the contest. Or maybe I'll design something and enter it. Who knows? <laughs> there you go. Uh, and in that case, you couldn't be a judge. That'd be unfortunate. But uh, <sighs> you know, we'll make it work. <laughs> But anyway, uh, before we get into it, who are you? Just in case people have never heard of you, never heard of your company. How'd you get into game design, all that good stuff? All right. Well, my name is David Abelson. You already told them that. By day, I'm a marketing teacher in a high school. I started playing card games when I was very young. Played games with my grandmother, you know, solitaire and rummy and all that stuff. Got very excited about card games. Learned how to play a lot of card games. And at the same time, I played a lot of chess and backgammon. In my house, it was who could learn how to play chess fast enough to beat my dad. <laughs> so we spent several years trying to figure out how to beat my dad. Finally, right. it happened when we were teenagers. Uh, I watched people play Magic for almost a decade, and I stayed away from it as, as, as well as I could. And what happened was I got into pool, like pocket billiards, and mm -hmm. poker instead of games. So I spent... A very large portion of my free time in the next several years doing that. But in 2013, uh, I had already played Catan a few times in Pandemic with, uh, with my family. And I started to play board games with my stepson, who had always played with his dad. But we didn't really play that much at home. And as soon as I saw how vast the board game universe was, I was hooked. Uh, I, I started playing games in 2013, I would say, in the last... Five years, I've played three or four hundred games, if you don't count prototypes. Yeah. And I just fell in love. Gotcha. And then what got you into the actual design aspect of things? Well, about a year into playing, uh, I, I guess I've always been sort of a designer uh, uh, tinkerer. And uh, about a year into playing, I, it just, I just, it was a natural progression for me. Uh, oh, we're playing these games. I can emulate this. I wonder if I could do something different. Can I, uh, you know, take this idea and, you know, do it a, di a different way? Uh, really got excited about that. And with a background in graphic design, I started, you know, just playing. So for about a year, all I did was play with stuff and, and think about stuff and didn't even design anything. And then one thing led to another, and I designed a couple of games that didn't get finished, as you probably know. Uh, how that works yeah. and uh, 
they they're sitting on a shelf and I kept designing more games and they're sitting on a shelf and then finally uh uh I got one that made it all the way to the finish line. Yeah, gotcha. And is that Intel? That's Intel, yeah. Yeah, and it's it's a good game. Uh, it's one I've I've played. Uh, it's it's an abstract strategy game, which kind of leads into what we're why you're the guest for this uh, particular topic. But uh, it's it's an interesting game. It's it's uh, it's real thinky. It's a two player deal, and just kind of back and forth, and and really having to think you know five moves ahead and trying to set your opponent up for failure. It's, it's got a very like chess like vibe in that way. And so I'm interested to kind of hear your thoughts on this, since you are a uh, a designer of these kinds of games. But first, before we even even get into it. What is an abstract strategy game? Like, if you were going to define it, and I'm asking you to, <laughs> uh, what would be your definition? It's a really tough question to ask. I mean, when somebody says, uh, can you define a deck builder or can you define a worker placement game? I think there's a very set in stone definition to what those things are. And of yeah. course, uh, designers have begun to change the path on that as well. With dice, dice worker placement is a little bit more uh complex than worker placement with abstract strategy games go back thousands of years Mm. Uh, but modern uh modern players and modern designers they look at it a little bit differently i mean i think some of the things that abstract strategy games have in common uh is they almost always provide players with perfect information they almost always can survive without any theme at all. Mm. Uh, some people are, are very strict uh, about the fact that an abstract strategy game must be a two-player game. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's, I, it's not a set-in-stone kind of a thing. And nowadays with games like Azul and Sagrada coming out that are being touted as abstract strategy games, and I would say they are, uh, They've sort of pushed the bar because now we're talking about multiple players more than two and a theme that has a little bit of legs. Uh, it It's interesting seeing what's happening, to be honest. But if you think about abstract strategy games, you really have to go back to chess, checkers, go, backgammon, even though it has dice. I think that's probably the 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 most common examples. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, nowadays you have, you know, Santorini, like you're saying, Sagrada, and these like really interesting games that are in a lot of ways just kind of built off of those old school games you're talking about. They, they take the ideas that are common, that were common in chess or checkers or backgammon, these kind of things, and they just kind of put a new twist, maybe add a little, add a little bit of theme on there that doesn't, you know, it's a little pasted on, but it still works. But uh, here's a question I have. Why, why do you think so many of them are two player? Like, what is it about the two player experience that just kind of lends itself to an abstract strategy game? It's funny that that you ask it that way. Um, I, I think of abstract strategy games as as almost needing to be zero sum games, hmm. uh, where if I if I gain, you lose, yeah. and and vice versa. And at the end of the game, somebody's going to win. And if for that to really, I guess for that to really be uh, fleshed out the best possible way, head to head is is really the only answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you and I think that's why uh, nobody's developed four-player chess, mm-hmm. or at least not that I know of. Yeah, I would say a game like Have you played Nirishima Hex? Uh, I have not. Okay, I would say that is a game that comes pretty close to the concept of having like multiplayer 
uh, opportunities for, you know, this kind of abstract strategy do where you've got different pieces that do different things and have different abilities and some can uh, go one direction, some can go three directions. Like it's a very interesting abstract game with this kind of like crazy post-apocalyptic theme on there. Uh, I'd say that one is very interesting in the way it kind of, you could, you could do multiple players with that one and it still be effective. But yeah, that's, that's the only one that really comes to mind right now um, of these types of games that work well with, you know, multiple uh, players it just yeah like you're saying it seems to be a zero-sum deal and so if you have three players in there now you run into like king making issues and things like and that's something i think we're going to talk about in a minute with some of the design challenges you've run into is you run into king making and, and different things so it's not quite as zero-sum as a two-player uh, experience that's that's actually yeah that, that makes a lot of sense uh, of why that would why that would be now if you think about appeal like even like you said th- these games have been around thousands of years like this is as o- og of game you know as there is why, why, have these, why have these games been uh, so appealing for so long, even till you know, up till now, where people are still making them, still buying them, you know, still playing them? I think if we remove ourselves from the last, say, decade, and just think prior to that, the nice, yeah. the really nice thing about abstract strategy games is usually they're really compact, they're not complicated, the mechanics are. There's not a, a huge amount of mechanics, and they're usually very simple and straightforward, uh, which means what everybody's seeking right now in game design, I can teach it to you fast, and it's going to take you a long time to master it. Yeah, I think that's definitely the case, especially with uh, games like you've already mentioned, you know, Sagrada, uh, your game, Azul. Like these, like I've played these games. They're not complicated at all, but yet you could play it over and over and over again and still... Uh, take you a long time to really figure out the nuance of how to be uh, great at those games. They're they're easy to be good, and it's really hard to be great. And I think it's the same with chess and, and Go and these kinds of, uh, of games as well. And so, yeah, I think it just creates a really interesting opportunity for study. And I think if, there's a lot of people out there that have the brain that they really like to to take things apart, and they like to study and figure out how to, how to be the best they can possibly be. And these games definitely uh, appeal to them. Have you found that to be the case? I have I have found that to be the case. Uh, I, I believe a lot of chess players, for instance, have loved Intel because of it, its similarities, like you mentioned earlier in the conversation. What what I really see a lot is um, people who like patterns, who like math, who like combinatorial events and things like that. This is their this is where they feel comfortable. And it isn't that they don't enjoy playing other games. I, I mean, me too. I, I enjoy playing all types of games. But I think I gravitate towards uh, abstract strategy, maybe because I like the heads-up environment, maybe because I like uh, some opportunities that aren't necessarily chance-based, although I'm, I don't, I'm kind of a fan of a, a little bit of randomness. Mm-hmm. So, all right, so one of the things that abstract strategy games don't offer they don't offer take that Hmm. they don't offer dexterity they don't offer deduction these are all really popular well some of these are really popular right now but abstract strategy games stand the test of time because they don't offer trendy mechanics they give you something that's tried and true and every time you play it it's challenging, hopefully. I mean, there are, I mean, let's look look at this, right? Checkers is a solved game, so you can only play checkers so many times before you realize what the pattern is, and then you're done. Yeah. But chess, 
I mean, there's grandmasters of chess who've never figured out what the ultimate, you know, every time you play it is different. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that's, I think that's the, the elegance of abstract strategy games. And I think it's the draw. And I also think it's the reason why they've lasted thousands of years. Yeah. And go back to something you, you alluded to earlier or mentioned briefly earlier is there's no luck. Typically, now sometimes you have abstract strategy games with a little bit of luck, but typically there's not a lot of luck. It's perfect information. You know uh, everything that your opponent has access to. They know everything you have access to, and it's now a, a matter of, of battling of wits or, or cleverness or uh, who has studied more or who has kind of read their opponent better. It's, it's very interesting, the, 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 the metagame that goes along with, the, with these types of games because you're, you're playing your opponent just as much as you're playing the game. And so I think that also offers a, a lot of... Uh, appeal to certain kinds of gamers that, that really love that challenge of trying to figure out their opponent or trying to break their opponent just as much as they're trying to uh, figure out the game. Absolutely. I think that's just as important. In fact, it wouldn't be much of a game if you didn't worry about your opponent. Yeah, that's a really good point. But, but with a lot of you know games nowadays, the di- there's so much luck or so much dice or so, you know, so many take that element, something like that, that the game, sometimes you feel like it's playing you. You know, that you didn't really have as much control over the outcome. But with a game like chess or, you know, some of these other abstracts, it's like, okay, I am the reason I lost, <laughs> right? I, I did not play this game very well. It had nothing to do with any kind of luck or random-based deal. It's on me or, you know, or, or on my opponent. You can find that in, in other types of games, you know, the crunchy Euros, for instance. Yeah. Where your, your strategy, your decision-making uh, usually is relatively unaffected by chance. Uh, I, for me, that makes those games very appealing. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other hand, uh, I think a conversation you had on a recent podcast was was where you talked about input and output randomness and and the difference and what where the value is. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not opposed to an abstract strategy game with some small level of output randomness. I think if if I'm being provided with the knowledge that this is going to be random and I'm going to have to respond to it. I'm okay with that. I don't know that everybody is. I think, I think board game geek folks might have a conversation about this. (laughs) Uh, but, but that's how I feel. Yeah, for sure. And so you feel, uh, enough like, like this that you wanted to make these types of games so what in the world made you want like give me some of the kind of behind the scenes thoughts that were going through your brain when you sat down and thought you know what i'm gonna make an abstract strategy game like where did that come from why make one of these types of games well i will say this i didn't start by trying to design abstract strategy games actually the first game i tried to design was a deck builder mm. i'm still trying to design that game it's only been four and a half years <laughs> i'm gonna get it done but I think what I think the best ideas are the ones that just sort of happen to us, right? Just like they say, if you don't go out searching for love, you're more likely to find it. Yeah. Well, I didn't go out searching for abstract strategy games in terms of being a designer, but I sort of stumbled on it. Uh, Intel was the first abstract strategy game that I designed, and it came about as a result of a conversation that I had with a student about tic-tac-toe. Uh, it's a pretty unusual place to start there are some variations of tic-tac-toe many people know what they are you can find them on the internet so what we did was we had a conversation about tic-tac-toe and how tic-tac-toe is a solved game and how you know that's the reason why kids play it but adults don't 
and then there are more complex vari variations of tic-tac-toe, and those are solved games as well. In other words, that they've figured out what the optimal amount of moves is, and if you know that, then every time you play the game, you do the same thing, and it becomes boring as a result. Yeah, it's basically you just uh, figure out the pattern, crack the code, and then you win every time. Right. Um, the, what I did was I started with that, and I said, look, uh, I, I kind of like the concept of this game. What I really like is the reverse. Uh, have you ever played Quarto? No. What is that? Uh, Quarto is a is an abstract strategy game. Takes about ten minutes. I want to say it's a gigamic game. Did I pronounce that correctly? Oh, I don't know. Sounds good to me, man. I'm from Alabama. <laughs> we say things weird all the time, so you're good. Oh, good. Uh, <laughs> It takes about 10 minutes to play, and basically, you've got a whole bunch of wooden shapes and a 4x4 four four board uh, of, of uh, like a checkerboard that's 4x4. Four four. And your job is to make it so that no four shapes that have the same characteristic are in line when your opponent places a piece. And that happens because on your turn, you hand your opponent a piece, and they play it onto the board. And so what you're doing is you're sending your opponent where you want them to go. And I've discovered that that's where I was headed when we started Intel. Uh, you're making a decision about where the, the area where your opponent needs to land, and then they've got to make a decision about where the best move is. So it's kind of like you're the output randomness. Yeah, definitely. And one thing I really enjoyed about your game is that it creates it creates this interesting tactical play while also existing in this like strategic game. And so it's like, okay, where am I going to send my opponent right now on this turn so that three or four moves from now I can end up where I want to be on my turn and, and you know taking over uh, different territories. And Actually, let's take just a second. Tell me, tell the listeners uh, how your game works exactly. It's super simple. Like, there's hardly any rules. And so just kind of explain to the, the audience like, how your game works and that kind of thing. Okay. Well, Intel as a two-player game uh, features seven uh, hex-shaped tiles that represent a computer system. Now we did; it does have a theme. Uh, the each of the tiles contains seven hex-shaped spaces, and so there's a total of forty-nine spaces in the game. And the tiles are shuffled at the beginning of the game and laid out in a flower shape. And then players in turn, one player, uh, it represents the black hat hacker. They have black cubes called blocks of code. And one player represents the white hat hacker. They have white cubes that, uh, you know, blocks of code for them as well. And they take turns placing cubes into the different hexes or tiles on the board with the intent of uh, con gaining control of those tiles. And they do that by getting three cubes of their own color in that tile in a, uh, a certain pattern. And once they control three of those tiles that are adjacent to one another, they win the game. But the catch is that every time you play a cube onto one of the tiles, this, the color of the space where you place the cube dictates for your opponent what tile they have to place their next cube in. And then they have to place their cube on a space that is the color of their choosing and you follow suit by going to the tile that matches the space of the color that they played in. So you're kind of sending each other away from the places where you don't want 
your opponent to go, and at the same time trying to make it so that they send you to places you want to go. That's the whole game. Yeah, the game is such an interesting... It's, it's a setup. Like, the whole thing is a setup. Like, you're trying to set your opponent up so that you can win, and they're trying to set you up so you can win. It's like it's almost like a uh, like a good action movie in certain kinds of ways, right? Where, where the good guy and the bad guy are really just playing these little incremental, you know, tactical... Doing these tactical things, trying to set the other one up to fail. Maybe that's maybe that could be your next game. Is like the diehard, you know, abstract strategy. Game. And if you use that, you can then just just send me like one percent of the royalties or something like that. But like, it's this really interesting game, and it's really thinky. Like you're sitting, you're sitting there, and it's a little bit brain burning for a game with so few rules and so few components. And but it's it's yeah, it's really interesting uh, the way that it plays. And so, like, let's, let's actually let's talk a little bit more about the theme, right? Because, like, like we mentioned before, a lot of these games don't have theme, and if they do, they're just kind of pasted on. So, like, when you were thinking about, like, this game, did when did the theme come along? Like, did you have the mechanics of the game built, and you're like, oh, this, this could be, like, an interesting, like, hacker kind of theme added to this. That, that could work. Or, like, what, was, what came first? The entire game, from start to finish, was designed. And in late playtests... And I took it to a store, a local store. We have, Charlotte has uh, a bunch of really great local game stores, and I try to visit all of them. I took it to a local game store, and the owner of the game store played the game, and his first, the first words out of his mouth halfway through the game was, this could be a hacker game. (laughs) And I thought, all right, well, that makes sense. Uh, I had a further conversation with my brother. Both of my brothers are engineers. I have to confess that I do a lot of design, but I do design emotionally. Uh, my brothers are the, the data heads, yeah. and they're very good at it. Uh, I had a conversation with my younger brother, who is a software engineer, and I said, uh, look, this guy thinks we could theme this game that we've been working on, because they helped me with the math. Uh, this guy thinks that uh, we could make it a hacking game. What do you think? And so he knows all the jargon and the terminology, and he says, uh, yeah, that would fit. You got black hat and white hat, and, and you know it just kind of grew from there. Now, be honest. We'll all be honest. You don't need the theme to play the game or to enjoy it. But I think this is a world where people get excited about the theme in the game. You don't take it off the shelf at the store unless it has a theme these days, with the exception of like the gift series of games. Yeah. Uh in fact, that's I think that's the interesting thing about Santorini. Santorini is a beautiful game. They did a great job of it, right? But this is the second incarnation for Santorini, and the first time around, it wasn't nearly as beautiful of a game. It was focused more on the abstract nature of the game and a lot less on the pretty. Santorini does very well now because it's pretty. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's it's sold in Target now, mainly because yeah. of the way it looks, and it's got it's incredible gameplay. Like it's a great game, but like you're saying, if it was just great gameplay with black and white or you know whatever color uh, tiles or you know tokens or whatever, like nobody wants to play the the black cube white cube game. Like that's just like it's not interesting. But they'll play a game. It's like okay, yeah, I'm, we're you know different gods and goddesses, and and we're trying to you know win this really kind of convoluted build up the highest tower <laughs> game right it, the, the theme is ludicrous right but it gives it gives people something to kind of attach to right and with your game like the whole hacking thing it gives the player something they can kind of attach themselves to and say okay i'm the white hat or i'm the black hat and i'm trying to uh, overtake your mainframe you know because that's how people talk right they don't say hey you remember that time i put that black cube in that you know three in a row pattern and i won 
Like that's not what they say. Remember, you know, they talk in terms of story. And so giving just any kind of little bit of theme at all lets them speak in story terms, uh, maybe a little bit easier. I like the idea of being immersed in a game just as much as the next guy. I think even a little bit of theme, you know, we call it a pasted on theme, but let's be honest, designers design from multiple vent, uh, viewpoints, right? Yeah. We have designers who design mechanics first and we have designers who design theme first. And now what I think is the best way to do it is we have designers who design experience first, but at the, at the core it's all parts and pieces that get put together to make a, an experience in the, in the end. And so if the if the player of the game is is able to at least a little bit immerse themselves into what your intent is, then I think you've won. Yeah, I definitely agree. Uh, and even if, like you're saying, even if it is just kind of pasted on, I, I think that goes so much further than just having components laid out on a table. Uh, and so, like, what, what would be your advice to somebody who's maybe they've got an abstract strategy game and maybe they're trying to figure out a theme to put onto it? Would, would you have any advice for them as far as like how to figure out which theme to go with or kind of maybe anything you ran into that would be like a, a tips or behind the scene kind of thing? I would say this. What what you find real fast is if your goal is to pitch your game to a publisher, your theme doesn't necessarily matter. No, that's true. Because a publisher, and they have infinite wisdom beyond that of mere mortal designers, <laughs> uh, they know what customers will buy. And let's let's be honest, ultimately, that's what we want. Yeah. Uh, I play the game, I play all of my games with as many people as I can. I think that the best way for you to get a good feel for how your market is going to react to your product, and, and I don't mean to distill it like that, but that's what we're after ultimately, yeah. uh, is to have them experience it. And the feedback you get, it, it's priceless. I mean, you talk about playtesting like it's, well, it is. You can't stop playtesting. But I get feedback about theme just as much as I do about mechanics. They're going to tell you what it should be. Hmm. So if you start with an abstract strategy game and you're at a loss for what the theme should be, don't worry about it. But your abstract strategy game has to be Sagrada or it has to be Santorini or it has to be Azul in order for you to get some serious market presence with your game because abstract strategy, combinatorial abstract strategy games especially, where you've got only a two-player game, there's not a big market for that in this in this uh, board game universe that we're in right now. Yeah, that's a really good point. And so, man, would you would you say that the theme can kind of make or break? Because I don't, I don't know. If you think about Sagrada, it's about stained glass windows, right? Like that's not something people get super excited about right uh if you think about Azul, it's about floor tiles or tiles it's tiles like tiles on the wall or something like that um santorini is about stacking up things to make buildings effectively and so like these themes aren't exactly you know flying off the shelves in general like it's not like just a, a rash of stained glass window games and so like i don't it's interesting like, it's not like hey you know if you want your game to get traction it, your abstract strategy game to get traction it needs to be space or it needs to be zombies or it needs to be like insert generic popular sells well theme and so like what what do you what are your thoughts on that like these these like really popular games seem to have these like very odd kind of random themes on them 
Well, I think once you design an abstract strategy game, you've got a set of mechanics you have to work towards. And generally, they don't fit into the space theme or the zombie theme. Yeah. And and w- what they lend to is a unique theme. Mm. Uh, you know, building mosaic walls in in uh, Portugal, right? Portugal? Uh, that sounds good. Yeah, we'll go with that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but here's the thing, right? If I put an interesting theme on the game, what I'm doing is I'm giving myself an opportunity to provide people a game with awesome components, with, with you know, touchy-feely tactical stuff, right? Santorini, I mean, Azul would not be nearly the game it is had they not chosen those really awesome tiles. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and, and if you don't attach a, t- a theme to it, you're really just stuck, and I... You know, I, I don't want to talk down about my own game because we're cardboard and wood, but you're really just stuck with cardboard and wood if you don't put a good theme on it and, and take advantage of that theme by having awesome art like Sagrada has or awesome components. I, I think that's where the theme comes in. It's not necessarily that it has to be real deep. It's just that it has to give you a way to put your game together and make it a product so that people are going to get excited about it. And people got excited about Sagrada. Yeah. I mean, it's, you're right. It's, it, I have to be honest. I, when it first got out there, I was like, what is that? <laughs> right. but, but I've played the game and I can't stop. You know, and you know what the test of a good game is? When your wife will play it with you? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> My wife won't play very many, but she'll play Sagrada with me, and she'll she'll play Intel with me. Yeah, I wonder because there's an interesting connection between these three games we're talking about with Sagrada, Santorini, and Azul. Is in all three of those, when you get done, you step back from the table, and you you've kind of created a thing, right? Whether it's Sagrada, you you created like this really interesting. It looks like a stained glass window in a lot of ways, and Azul, it looks like a really interesting uh, tile, you know, wall or something like that. And Santorini, you have this kind of like all these structures and all these towers and these things you've built. I wonder if that also plays into one of the things that people enjoy about these games. If you think about human nature, we really like to build stuff. We like to create things. And so all three of these games allow the players through the gameplay, through the mechanisms, to create something that at the end it's like, oh, okay, yeah, here's this, here's this interesting thing that I put together. I wonder if that, how much that plays into it, their, their appeal. Well, I think as a general rule, people who... Uh, like, I'm, I'm a pattern guy, right? I really enjoy looking for the patterns in things. Yeah. And I think people who enjoy that, that that particular aspect are going to look for that in abstract strategy games and they're going to find it, right? I mean, Azul, uh, we keep bringing up these same games. I hope the publishers don't get mad at me. I don't, uh, I don't think they're going to be upset about us talking about their games. <laughs> <laughs> any, you know, any publicity uh, is good publicity. They're really, um, they're, they're really pattern-oriented games. When I'm all done, you're right, I developed a thing. But if I look at it from the top down... It's a pattern, yeah, and it's a it's a pleasing pattern, and it makes me feel good about myself, and that's a win as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, that's that's definitely the the case. I, I'm I'm with you right there. Now, as far as like design challenges, what were some of the big issues you ran into designing Intel and and kind of working from you know the starting point all the way up until the guy was like, hey, this should be a hacking thing. Like, what, tell me about the different challenges. I think the biggest challenge that I had to overcome was how am I going to make this uh, uh, the appearance of the game something that's easy for people to follow when I tell them the instructions. Um, I always knew that it was going to be this hex-shaped sort of 
pattern and and you know there's math involved in all of that and i and i think the biggest obstacle for me is like i said earlier i design from from feel right and i think there's other designers who would agree with me that, that this is sometimes the way we start yeah. i design from feel but then you can't design an abstract strategy game from feel and then put it out on the market you have to have some sort of a substantiation for the fact that this game is is has got several uh, paths to victory that there's an interesting decision tree that you're, it's not solved uh, and and okay so that I want to stop with solved because I've said it a lot there are a lot of solved games that are still fun to play and us as people are not going to solve them but they've been solved by a computer right right uh, I don't think being a solved game by a computer makes a game bad but the the challenge for me was okay i've decided that this is what i want to do this is what i want the feel to be i've i've mocked up this prototype cuz you know fail faster hmm, right. i've mocked up this prototype and i've started playing it and we tried it and i like it but is it real or is it just a figment of my imagination did i just did we make something that seems like it's fun but when i get it out into the world and everybody plays it, is it still going to be fun? Is it still going to have that depth? Is it still going to, you know, please people? And so we started with a computer. I individually, I talked to both of my brothers. Like I said, they're both engineers. And I said, look, we need to create a simulator that, you know, handles the tree for this game and makes sure that the game is not solved already, that it's, that, you know, we need to optimize win conditions. We need to make sure that, and so a lot of that information, a lot of that really mathy data stuff was taken care of by a computer. We ran 2 million simulations of the gameplay before we decided that it was ready. I don't know if everybody does that, but it certainly felt good to me. Yeah, that's that's crazy. I don't know of anyone. I'm sure there are people out there that have done this. And I think even JT Smith talked about uh, developing different things as far as running programs to run simulations and all that. But yeah, like what? Tell me a little bit more about that. Like, what did you use to create that, and like how? Like, what did that process look like? To be honest, I'm not the expert on that. Uh, each of my brothers developed a piece of software, essentially. They did, well, three pieces of software were developed in total. And we're talking about like a program, right? Yeah. A, a certain number of lines of code, right. not a fancy piece of software. So uh, they developed the game as code so that uh, I guess the, the base of the simulation was there. And then each of them developed code that made a player. And they put these players into the game and had them play each other. And so they would, uh, basically, they would attempt to find the optimum move and respond to their opponent's optimum move and so on and so forth until the game was over. So then then we would establish a win condition and say, okay, well, this, this is what we want to have happen. Uh, we want to make sure that this player goes first. We want to make sure that there isn't too much, if any, of a first player advantage. We let's let's isolate all these data points and let's see what's going on, and then we would run it. And you know, I mean, a hundred thousand games of Intel takes I don't know what ten minutes on a computer. 
you get a lot of you can get a lot of information that way. Now, Intel is a is is a relatively simple game when it comes to rules. And that's why I think a game like hmm, Scythe hmm. might be a much more complicated uh I don't I don't mean might be is a much more complicated thing to to simulate in that way. Uh but I'm sure there's people who can do it. There's an awful lot of smart people out there. Yeah, and this is actually an interesting thing uh, about the backstory of Dominion that a lot of people don't know. So they developed it as as a program, as a simulation, before it became an actual like card game, before it became a deck builder. They had all these cards and the way they, they came out and different combinations and the way things would play out. And so they had all these all this data from all these simulations and all these people that had played it online and, and kind of gone through. They had so much information before the game was even printed, and, and they had so many uh expansions already worked out and already figured out and already simulated and already, you know, how the information and data they needed for those. That's why they were able to come out with so many expansions in a relatively short amount of time because they already already done so many simulations to kind of know that the game worked and it wasn't broken and all that. And so, yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of people out there using uh, this kind of stuff. It's it's kind of hard to get into. Like, either you know how to do it or you don't. It's not like you can kind of uh, just, you know, wander your way through and, and understand this or you either uh, know how to make the code and make these programs happen or not. And I guess that's another reason why we need to uh, teach our kids code. It's not just the kind of wave of the future as far as everything, you know, going towards automation and robotics, robotics and all that kind of stuff. It's also to help make better games. And so as, as game designers, we should be pushing the envelope there uh, as well. But it's like, what, what were some of the data points? Like you, you mentioned first player bias, you know, more likely to win if you're first player or not. Like what were some of the other like information data points that you were looking for? Uh, first player bias was probably one of the biggest because, you know, players notice that right away. Oh, well, look what, look, oh yeah, he always wins. Okay, so we wanted to eliminate that. And when we started, there was a first player, uh, definite, there was definitely a first player advantage. So we had to make some adjustments to the way the game played in order to do that. We were concerned about, uh, one of the data points was, should we figure out a way to get people to play a cube on the 49th space, or should we only give everybody an equal number of cubes? Hmm. And so what, that we ended up giving each player 24 cubes because that was optimal as a result of the data that we got. Uh, the, the spacing or the, the placement of the spaces on the hexes, that was we attempted to optimize that the best way we could uh, using the simulation, and I think we did a pretty good job of that as well. Oh, and, and probably the biggest thing of all of it was the win condition. Initially... I thought that the win condition was going to be that you had to control four tiles. Uh, and we played it several times, and it, it worked pretty okay. But when we put it in the simulator, there was a substantial advantage uh, to... I, I actually believe it was the second player. When four hexes or four tiles was the win condition so we had to fiddle around with that was it going to be four tiles was it going to be three tiles uh were they going to be adjacent did it matter etc etc and that was a that was a completely different process by the way than the process we went through when we designed the solo expansion because everything changed yeah for sure i want to get into the solo expansion in just a minute let's let's go back just to something you, you mentioned a moment ago how did you eliminate the first player advantage like what were some of the things you tweaked or changed to make sure that first player didn't have you know some kind of wildly uh, imbalanced you know percentage of winning one of the things that we uh noticed early on and i i sort of alluded to this with the number of cubes that we're letting players play 
one of the things that we noticed early on was that the player who played the first cube, which in our case has always been the black hat because he's infiltrating the computer system, uh, he, that player would play the last cube. If the game ever got to, and it doesn't always, but if the game ever got to 48 cubes being played, it was the first player that was going to play the 49th cube, which meant he got a substantial advantage. Uh, the other thing was uh, the first player, initially, you could play your cube on any space, on any tile. Now, you'll notice, I think if you look at the board, that every tile that has the, the formation of all the spaces on the tile, there's a substantially better position if you play in the center of the tile because your chances of winning control of that tile are, excuse me, there are three ways to win that tile if you're on the center. And if you choose an outside uh, space, there's only two ways to, to win control of that tile. Now, that in and of itself wasn't necessarily an advantage. But the center tile, the one in the middle of the flower shape, and its center space were very valuable. And uh, gave the first player a distinct advantage if they could start in there. Now, all we did to to fix that was to make it so that you can't play your first cube in the center tile and it solved the problem. Gotcha. And that's, you know, it's, it's like, you don't want to add too many edge case rules, you know, but I guess if it's one of those things that's going to make the game a lot more interesting, a lot more fun and a lot more balanced, then that's just one of the, one of the things that you have to do. I wish there were, I wish there's definitely some rule books out there that really need some edge case rules that just, you know, you just need one or two little things there to like to make the game a little bit more enjoyable, a little bit more fun. Uh, but going back to what you're talking about with the solo, so like design challenge of making this type of game, this abstract strategy game, into a solo experience, like how in the world did you make that happen? Well, first of all, I had help from my son. Uh, my son Nathaniel is 15, and he has played the game probably the second most of anybody who's played the game. Uh, we... I mentioned to him that some people had expressed an interest in having a solo game, so he and I began the, the conversation. And the initial conversation and what actually ended up happening in the long run is, all right, well, we need an AI. Well, the problem with an AI has a tendency to be, well, now you're in, introducing randomness to something that had no randomness. Mm, yeah. Our decision ultimately was to embrace that because the fact of the matter is, in a real situation, in a real, you know, we went thematic with it, in a real hacking situation, you aren't going to know the path that your opponent's going to take. And, more importantly, he's sometimes going to do things that surprise you. Yeah, that's true. So we've created, and uh, our, the result was, first of all, we had to make it so that the win condition was different. Because if the win condition was still only three tiles in a row, there was way too much opportunity for this AI to come out ahead. And so there was a whole months of, of just trying to balance uh, the right win condition. And this, this was not done with computer. This was all done by feel. Uh, we're balancing the win condition. We're making sure, okay, is it going to be four? Is it going to be five? Is it going to be you know four in a row? It became crazy. We still only have seven tiles to deal with. Well, ultimately, the solution was, okay, uh, first of all, 
where you place the tiles in the solo game doesn't matter. Because adjacency doesn't matter. To win the game, the black hat, which is the player, has to control five of the system tiles. Now there's only seven, which means that the AI, in its infinite wisdom, only has to stop you from controlling three tiles in order for you to fail. Gotcha. And so is the AI run through like a deck of cards and then you just kind of flip over a card and it tells you what the AI does? Like, how does it work? The AI is a deck of 28 cards. Uh, the 28 cards have a base uh, space color and, and some subsequent space colors. So if you play your cube, that's going to send the AI to a tile. And then we'll draw a card to see which space he's going to go to. If the space is already occupied, we'll choose the next color on the card and move our way down. And so uh, the color patterns were optimized to make sure that that was an equal opportunity sort of situation. Uh, the other advantage that the AI has, not like he needed more, but <laughs> the AI is, is very smart. So he gets six firewall cubes that he gets to start the game with. And at the beginning of the game, we're going to place these firewall cubes into the various systems of the corporation or the, the tiles. Uh, and so now he's already got a head start, essentially. When, when the AI is sent to a tile where he has a firewall, he ignores the firewall as though it was one of his own cubes. When you get sent to a tile where there's a firewall, you have to replace the firewall cube with one of your cubes before you can do anything else on that tile, which is also thematic. You wouldn't be able to break into that system if you didn't get through the firewall. So that's the first thing you do, which sort of limits you in those couple of moves uh, where there's firewalls involved, but it also uh, adds to the suspense of what's going to happen in the game. And that was the ultimate result. Gotcha. It's a very interesting way to, to do it. I mean, I'm trying to think through, like, could you make a chess a single-player game? Could you make, you know, all these you know other games we've been talking about into single-player experiences? It would be interesting to, to see somebody uh, pull that off. Now, going back to playtesting, what were some of the other challenges you ran into as far as playtesting one of these types of games? To be honest, I didn't, I didn't have any trouble. I think one of the nice things about this particular game is I can say to almost anybody, hey, would you like to try a game? It's 15 minutes long, it's two-player, and it's very simple. I'll explain the rules to you in about three minutes, and then you can see what you think. And and, and I've had a lot of success with this particular game, because I don't have to say, hey, look, we're going to do a playtesting session. We need five hours of your time. Okay, make sure that you uh, clear your schedule and leave your kids home and... and don't drink too much beer because we need you sharp. Right. I don't have to worry about that. I can just go to any store or we have so many meetups in Charlotte. I'm so fortunate uh, to have all of the, there's just such a, uh, a thriving board game community here that, that I can go out to anywhere and just say, Hey, would you try this out? In fact, I was at an event today. I didn't bring Intel with me. I, I don't know why. Uh, and, I had two of my other prototypes with me, and this was an event at a at a cidery. You know, people are drinking and having fun and playing casual games. And, yeah. and I was like, hey, you, you want to try this uh, this game? And they, they were like, yeah, let's do it. Um, that's that's not the the optimal playtest session. I know you want to you want to uh, set up a playtest session where everything is sort of, you know, vanilla 
and and you have control over all of the variables but i want to see it out in the in the open i want to watch people i want to see what their eyes do when they're staring at the board i want to see how they react to their opponent's move and i think in an abstract strategy game where the goal the fun of an abstract strategy game isn't the same as the fun of a deduction game or the fun of uh you know, where words, it, it's, it's different. It's, it's serious fun. It's my eyes are going to, you know, really focus on, uh, what, what I have to do next. And I'm going to, I'm going to stare at the board funny and, you know, do all sorts of weird things. <laughs> uh, but that's, that's abstract strategy. And I can't see that in a vacuum. So when I get it out in front of players, uh, I don't know if that answered your question, but. Uh, yeah, no, I, I see what you're saying. Um, one thing that's really good, a good advantage that these types of games have, especially with people who aren't necessarily gamers, right? People who have only been exposed to general games, you know, Monopoly and chess, that kind of thing, is you can you can say to that kind of person with this type of game, hey, you want to play my game? They say, well, what is it? And you say, well, it's kind of like chess, but but, but easier. Like, oh, oh, okay, yeah, because they immediately know what you're talking about. When you say chess, they know. Uh, I'll give you another example. So today in, in, in my classroom, uh, I had a couple of seniors. Like, we had a little extra time today. We'd, we'd finished the test, and so we had like five minutes left over, and I was just letting them kind of hang out and, and talk and chill. And I've got a, a shelf in the back of my, my classroom because I run the, the board game club uh, on Mondays, and there's just a shelf there with you know, a handful of games. And a couple of the girls from class were like looking at the games and kind of like checking them out and opening the boxes, looking at the pieces. And uh, I went back there and I just, you know, said, hey, you know, if you've got any questions, I'd, you know, just, just tell me. I'll, t- I'll tell you about these games. And the first question is uh, one of the girls was looking at it. Uh, it's a Dungeons and Dragons game. It's The Wrath of a Chardalon, right? It's this like D&D board game. And she was looking at it and she looked at me and she said, is this like Monopoly? <laughs> I was like, um, yeah, kind of. You know, there's dice, you roll dice, you know. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm trying to relate this game. To Monopoly, this D&D board game to Monopoly. But that's what she's played. That's, she's played Uno and Monopoly and Scrabble, and that's her understanding of board games. And so, like, if you have a game that is somewhat similar, and, and you know, if it's somewhat similar to Checkers, somewhat similar to Uno, then you're going to instantly connect with people who've only played those kinds of games, and they're more, much more likely to understand and to, to sit down and want to play and, and probably enjoy their time. And so I'd say that's actually a pretty good advantage that abstract strategy games have. I think there's a double-edged sword there, though, because, yeah, I've got this game that sort of emulates, and, and one of our early players, I think, coined, coined the phrase, it's like chess and tic-tac-toe had a baby. There you go. Uh, okay, I love it. It's great. But when you make an abstract strategy game, or really any game, that you can compare easily to another game, you have to be careful that people don't say, well, I can play that other game. Why do I need That's yours? That's true. Why does this game exist if a better version that I already know how to play already exists? It's <laughs> a good point. you got to yeah. be careful. Yeah, there's no horses in my game or castles, <laughs> so I think I'm safe. There you go. All right, let's uh, let's kind of switch gears here. Let's talk about marketing. Let's go back into the whole, you know, this thing is a product. The gaming industry is a business. What have been the challenges of marketing this kind of a game? That's a loaded question, Gabe. <laughs> Uh, I'm a very, very small publisher. In fact, Intel was the first game that I published, and I'm excited to say that. But one of the downsides of being a fresh, brand-new publisher with only one title is that you're limited in terms of the kinds of viral marketing that you're going to happen upon. Uh, Intel was a Kickstarter campaign. It it uh, did okay for the way that that we put the Kickstarter together, it funded, and, and I'm 
kind of excited about that in and of itself. Uh, uh, we, it's got good component quality. It's a nicely made game. We have uh, managed to... Uh, all of the board game stores in Charlotte are carrying the game, and uh, I would imagine by the time this conversation airs, the, they'll be available in Raleigh as well. So nice. we're, we're getting some feelers out in North Carolina, but there's an awful lot of the United States that doesn't even know what Intel is. And the thing that bothers me about that is I like to go to cons, but I'm still kind of new at all this, so I don't go to a ton of cons. I was at Dice Tower Con, which, of course, is uh, where we hung out. Um, the, The response from the people at Dice Tower Con was amazing, and it only led me to believe that to market a game like this, you have to get it in front of people. I put it in the first local store here, and he sold through almost a case of my product. Now, I don't know... If you know the kind of volume that a normal local game store goes through of a game, but it's generally three or four copies at a time. Yeah, it's definitely not a case. <laughs> he It took him a, a little over a month, but he moved almost a case of my game. And yeah. one of the reasons he did, one of the ways that he was able to do that is, you put my game on a table and you can teach it to people in five minutes. Right. And they enjoy it. Everybody enjoys it and says, all right, how much is it? And the price point is good. And so I think all those things... Uh, matter from a marketing perspective. But my challenge right now, and the one that that uh, probably will elude me for at least the next couple of months, is to get more people to find out about the game and to find somebody who wants to distribute it. Yeah, definitely. And something we were talking about even before the before we got to talking on the actual episode here is it's such a crowded market right now, especially Kickstarter. Kickstarter is so noisy right now with so many different amazing products. And so it, it's it's difficult to stand out when you have a, a not you know, any any game with you know amazing theme, amazing mechanics, amazing gameplay, amazing experience. It's still hard to stand out. And so yeah, it's just it's becoming more and more difficult. But like you said, it's it's really about hustling and grinding and getting the game in front of people and approaching them and saying, hey, you want to try this game? It takes three minutes to learn, you know, fifteen minutes to play, you know, give it a shot. And I think you just kind of have to just keep grinding and keep hustling, especially if, like you're like you like you are. You're a small publisher, and so you're just making phone calls, right? That's how everybody. Basically, everybody has to get started. You, you you make phone calls, you make connections, you network, you get in front of people, you get to know uh, folks in the in the industry and around uh, the, around your community and then around your state and around your country, and then you just kind of hopefully slowly becomes something bigger. I, I'm reminded of Colby Dowk over at Pied Hat Games. That's kind of how he started. He had this one game that he really believed in, and it and he slowly just kind of grinded it out and grinded it out, and eventually they became who they are now. And I mean. They just got one of their games got picked up by DreamWorks to make a movie. Like that's where they are now. It's kind of crazy with Mice and Mystics. And so, but he just hustled and hustled and hustled, and and he, he was lucky in certain ways, and he worked his butt off in other ways, and it just it turned out. And I think that's just kind of how how it is, no matter what game, but especially a game that's a little bit harder to market, like an abstract strategy game uh, might be. Uh, yeah, I, I would agree with that a hundred percent. And uh, you know what? I have a lot of really awesome role models. The the struggle for me is, <laughs> you know, I I absorb podcasts, uh, you know, like like their cookies. I love it. I love to listen to interviews from designers who know what they're talking about, from developers, from publishers, and just I'm just learning. I just keep learning. There's no way to stop. I've got a long way to go. But thankfully, this industry is so friendly. Yeah. And these people are so 
uh, I'm going to say wise, they may not agree with that word, but there's, these people are so wise that I can reach out to, uh, a, you know, a publisher who's been doing it for 20 years and say, Hey, you know, I've got this problem and, and I don't really know how to overcome it. Can you help me? And the chances are good that I'm going to get a positive or, or at least nice response from them. Um, that you don't find that in other industries. You just don't. Yeah, absolutely. Well, David, man, really, I've, I've enjoyed kind of learning and figuring this stuff out. These, these aren't the kind of games that I have had much design uh, work in, and so this has been really interesting. Do you have any kind of like closing thoughts or, or final advice for somebody who's working on an abstract strategy game? I think the only advice I would have is uh, keep doing it. Don't let the world telling you that abstract strategy games aren't popular stop you from designing the next best awesome abstract strategy game. Yeah. They're not the only thing to design. I mean, we, I, I design all sorts of things, but they're worth it. Definitely. Well, before we get out of here, tell me more about your Kickstarter. Uh, the Kickstarter campaign for Intel Firewall, the solo expansion for Intel, launches November 12th. We're looking for a couple hundred people who are willing to put down $9 to get a copy of the expansion, or we will be offering copies of the base game with the Kickstarter campaign. And really, we're just looking for more people who would like to give it a shot. Take a look at the campaign, see what you think, reach out to me, ask me some questions. I'm happy to help. Awesome. And again, this is a game that, that I've played, that I've enjoyed. And uh, yeah, it's, it's thinky. It's one of those games you, you kind of sit there and you stare at the board for a little while and you're going to process some things and, and try to make that best move to set your opponent up. Uh, so he loses and you win. And yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting game. I, I recommend it. But David, again, man, really appreciate you coming on the show. Appreciate your time. Uh, good luck with the Kickstarter campaign, campaign and good luck with everything else you got going on right now. I appreciate that, Gabe. It was good to be here. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?